0: first meeting of the 142nd session of the Aristotelian Society. Um, It's my very great pleasure as outgoing president to introduce our incoming president, Professor Bob Stern from the University of Sheffield. Um, As I'm sure many of you know, Bob works both on the history of philosophy and in that area in particular on 19th century post-Kantian German philosophy, especially Hegel. And he also works on contemporary issues in epistemology, metaphysics, ethics, political philosophy, and the philosophy of history. His books include Hegel, Kant and the Structure of the Object, his commentary on Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit, a collection of his own essays on Hegelian metaphysics, Transcendental Arguments and Skepticism, Understanding Moral Obligation, Kant, Hegel, Kierkegaard, Kantian Ethics, Value Agency and Obligation, and the very recent, The Radical Demand in Logistrup's Ethics. Um, He was elected a Fellow of the British Academy in 2019. His paper today is, How is Human Freedom Compatible with the Authority of the Good? Murdoch on Moral Agency, Freedom and Imagination. So with that, I'll hand over to Bob um, to give us his inaugural as president of the Aristotelian Society. Thank you very much, Bill. Um, It's a great
1: uh, privilege, although a slightly daunting one, uh, to be here. And thank you to the Aristotelian Society for electing me. Um, I'd also like to thank Bill very much at this point of handover um, for his great stewardship through a very difficult year chairing nothing but online meetings so not even some nice meals to, to go with the presidency. And, and uh, I'm sure he's welcome to join us for meals at any point when if and when we get back to them. (laughs) But thank you, Bill, uh, for all your work. And um, just to say that there is a handout, which I think you can get on chat to download. It's a rather boring handout just of quotes. um, But I thought that might be useful in case people want to discuss specific passages. Um, So I'm gonna do this as a PowerPoint presentation. So I'm just gonna share the screen before I get started. So just give me the usual awkward moment of setting things up. Um, Okay, I hope that's all right. I'm getting some nods, great. So as Bill said, yes, the title is a quote from Murdoch, how is human freedom compatible with the authority of the good? Murdoch on Moral Agency, Freedom and Imagination. Um, and I'm gonna start the paper with a puzzle or an aporia, which I hope I'm going to be able to resolve with help um, of ide- uh, from ideas from Iris Murdoch. The, the aporia arises out of two incompatible but plausible looking views on the nature of rational agency and their relation to moral action. And I'm going to illustrate the puzzle by considering the familiar example of the Good Samaritan. So I'm sure you all know this uh, example and text, but just to remind you, uh, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, obviously, this is uh, a parable um, designed to answer a specific question uh, put to Jesus, who is my neighbor? But I still think, aside from just being a parable, the Good Samaritan is seen more generally as a kind of ethical paradigm or exemplar of moral goodness. Why, you might ask. Well, one reason I think is obviously because he helped the traveler and the others didn't. Uh, The priest and the Levite passed by on the other side. But also I think the way in which he came to help the traveler is significant in our thinking of him. As a paradigm. So, two features of his action arguably make him a paradigm of this sort. First of all, the Good Samaritan acted without a sense of duty. He just sees the traveller needs his care, which he recognizes out of concern or love or compassion or pity, spark nizome, for the traveller. And the other feature of his action is that the good Samaritan has no desire apparently to do otherwise or to act differently. And these thoughts are related, arguably. The sense of duty, one might say only arises if one feels that what is right to do constrains some desire to do otherwise and hence becomes binding as a kind of obligation. So this is a point made, I think, by Kant in talking about necessitation, Schiller and Lugströck in talking about the Kantian Samaritan and arguably Williams in talking about one thought too many. So the good Samaritan, as we think of him, um, simply seems to have a reason to help the traveler and acts on it. At the same time, he's not thinking he has a reason to do anything else except to help the traveler. Well, what other reasons might he have had? Well, you could think he has a reason to carry on his journey without stopping, or perhaps he thinks he could steal something from the traveler while he can, or that he could extort some money from the traveler in payment for his assistance and so on. And if that were the situation, he would then arguably have competing reasons to act. And we could picture the Samaritan as choosing between different options, and so deciding to do one thing rather than the other. But suppose we did think of the Good Samaritan that way, would he really be the Good Samaritan? Um, To be good in the way that makes him the kind of paradigm he seems to be, it appears that the only reason he has is the reason he has to help the traveler. To use McDowell's term, all other reasons would be silenced. They just wouldn't figure in his view of the situation or in his deliberations. But then of course, he wouldn't be faced with any choice or decision. To the good Samaritan, the only reason he would have is the reason he has to care for the traveler. And so there's no deliberation about this or decision whether to act this way or not. That just wouldn't arise for him. So he's not thinking, faced with this choice, I'll do A rather than B. If he did, if he felt faced by any choice, he wouldn't, again, be the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan, it seems, only has one option. And so there's nothing to decide or choose between. Now, this isn't to say, it's not that the Good Samaritan could not do otherwise if he wanted to. And, or, and nor is it to say that it's somehow metaphysically impossible for him to do otherwise, because he's causally determined, and so on. It's just that in acting as he does, he's not choosing to do one action rather than another, and so he's not exercising his will in that sense. But now suppose the Good Samaritan found himself in a more complex situation, so perhaps there are several people for him to help. In this case, the Good Samaritan now has competing reasons which must be weighed up and so there's no obvious silencing. There are other reasons in play. But still, we might think all that would happen here is he consider what he has most reason to do and act accordingly depending on the result. So once practical reason has done its work, there is still no room left for choice or willing to act differently. So just to give a simplistic kind of picture of what's going on here, we have the the original situation, the situation in which the agent finds themselves. Practical reasoning does its work. It identifies what the agent has most reason to do, and then the will brings about the action. That's all that the will is doing um, in this picture. Now, it seems to me the Good Samaritan looks pretty attractive as both a moral and a rational agent. As I said, he's a kind of paradigm uh, or exemplar. He's guided in his actions by what he has most reason to do. He acts accordingly without hindrance from any non-rational forces or external constraint. And so his will follows his reason in a way that is unimpaired by a crazier, unreflective desires, irrational drives, or forces beyond his control from outside. And nor are we thinking that his action is explained merely mechanistically and thus deterministically, but we're appealing to reasons. Uh, we're in the space of reasons, as people say. So, given all this, we might also take him to be free. But now I want to consider um, objections to this view, and in particular, I'm going to focus on recent work by Ruth Chang, uh, a paper on normative powers and related work in which she rejects what she calls the orthodox view. So on this view, rational agency, she puts it, is a matter of recognizing and responding to reasons so so that our freedom in being a rational agent consists in our capacity to recognize and respond to reasons in this way. But Chang is dissatisfied with this kind of account. She argues instead for a, more, uh, for a picture that she calls more agent-centered, an agent-centered way of thinking about rational agency. So here's a passage that um, sets out her view, talking about the orthodox view. But I believe that this view of rational agency is profoundly misguided, or at least unattractive. It leaves no room for the agent in leading her life as a rational agent. Where are you in the conduct of your life as a rational agent? Your role with respect to reasons is to recognize them and then to respond to them by doing what you have most reason to do. There is, as it were, a rational script to follow and your job as a rational agent is to execute that script as best you can. The orthodox view treats us as passive automata in relation to our reasons. Indeed, with a large enough database of reasons and appropriate responses from which to learn, AI might well count as rational agents on the orthodox view. If rationality is a skill, then there is a sense in which we are slaves to our reasons. Reasons are given to us by the world, and what we must do in the face of them is given to us by normative principles or values that we discover, but do not create. Chang argues against this, that we should move instead to an active rather than a passive view of rational agency. So rather than seeing agents as following rational reasons, this view treats the agent as creating such reasons through an act of will. So as she puts it, on the passive view, everything we do as an intentional exercise of rational agency is guided by reasons. On the active view, some intentional exercises of rational agency are things we do as a matter of will and are not themselves guided by reasons. This gives us, as she puts it, freedom to have an active role in determining the reasons we have. And she thinks without this, we would not really be agents, just passive followers of what it is that we have reason to do already. Now, Chang doesn't think that the will can play this role in all cases. She thinks it's a capacity the will has where the reasons the agent has are incommensurable but comparable, and either in equipoise, i.e. neither one is better than the other, or they're equally good and we can't do both, or where they're indeterminate. One is better, but to an indeterminate degree. So her voluntarism is not total, but hybrid, because it allows that the will is constrained where the reasons available are not of this type. So again, just to present a sort of picture of the difference here. First of all, we have the orthodox view. You have a, or what Chang would now call an orthodox view. You have the situation of the agent. Practical reason identifies what the agent has most reason to do and the will brings about the action. And Chang's worry is, well, yeah, but where's the active will in this picture? The will just does what practical reason, in effect, tells it to do, but that isn't active enough. So she presents a different picture where there's the active will that creates reasons, and then you will the action on the basis of the reasons the will has created for itself. Now I think Chang is raising an important and interesting issue here because it suggests a possible threat to our freedom that doesn't come from the rather traditional debates about mechanistic determinism and so on, but rather from our relation to reasons as practical agents. Is the free agent one who acts in accordance with such reasons as we saw in the example of the Good Samaritan as I presented it, Or is it the agent one who creates such reasons through an act of will, which is Chang's view? And I think that's what gives rise to the aporia that I'm interested in. So on the one hand, Chang appeals to the idea that freedom must involve more than just the will carrying out the instructions of the intellect. Her view is that this isn't sufficiently agential and it just makes us no more than slaves to our reasons. Practical reason on this picture, just as she puts it, would lead us around by the nose, always telling us what we are required to do if we are to be rational. But on the other hand, in response to this worry, she adopts a form of voluntarism in which the will creates reasons through its own activity. Willing is that in virtue of which the consideration is a reason, she says but she allows that this is only possible in particular cases of incommensurability. But then what are we to think about the Good Samaritan case? How can the presence of reasons take our freedom away from us as this view suggests? But then Chang can respond, if the agent is just following reasons, how is there any room for agency at all, as isn't the will then just subordinated to the intellect? But if instead freedom requires the will to be independent of the intellect, how can her view avoid claiming there's no real freedom in cases like that of the Good Samaritan? And so the debate goes round again. Now Cheng herself writes as if this issue hasn't been. Uh, much discussed. So she says, the orthodox view is so entrenched in our thinking about practical reason that it has only been very rarely directly or explicitly challenged. I'm not sure I think that that's right. It seems to me that this debate has a long history, in fact, and I think you can find uh, parallels of the debate uh, in medieval and early modern discussions between so-called intellectualists and voluntarists, I think you can find it in debates between Hegel and Kant on Vilcour and many other places. In fact, I was reading this week a book by Mark Sinclair, in which he has a quote from Bergson here on the, the distinction between ancients and moderns, which again, refers to this dispute. So Bergson says, for the ancients, being endowed with free will consists in oscillating between good and evil, between ignorance and knowledge, so free will is a last resort, a stopgap. The real sage who would be a God in the end could do without free will and would be superior to those possessing it. When we move from antiquity to modernity, we follow the real invention of the idea of freedom, free will becoming a sort of creation. And in this creation being as a creation, what makes of man a God, which is an idea absolutely opposed to the ancient idea. So Bergson I think would trace this back to the very distinction between the ancients and moderns. But I'm not going to dwell on this history, uh, interesting though I think it is, but I'm going to focus on a more contemporary figure named Iris Murdoch because I think not only does she relate to this history but um, she may also offer us a way to resolve the aporia So I'm first gonna consider where where Murdoch stands on these questions, and then I'm going to see how she might help us. So for Murdoch, the context of this issue is her engagement on the one hand with existentialism and on the other hand, contemporary analytic philosophy of her time. And both she understands both um, against the background of Kant. So Murdoch sees a trajectory beginning with Kant, as she says, and leading on to the existentialism and the analytic philosophy of the present day. And I'll just read this passage to give you a sense of how she sees this. The center of this type of post Kantian moral philosophy, she says, is the notion of the will as the creator of value. Values, which were previously in some sense inscribed in the heavens and guaranteed by God, collapse into the human will there is no transcendent reality. The idea of the good remains indefinable and empty so that human choice may fill it. The sovereign moral concept is freedom or possibly courage in a sense which identifies it with freedom, will, power. This concept inhabits a quite separate top level of human activity since it is the guarantor of the secondary values created by choice. Act, choice, decision, responsibility, independence are emphasized in this philosophy of puritanical origin and apparent austerity. It must be said in its favor that this image of human nature has been the inspiration of political liberalism. However, as Hume once wisely observed, good political philosophy is not necessarily good moral philosophy. So in her account of analytic philosophy and existentialism, Murdoch considers something like Chang's side of the aporia. And she raises various objections to this analytic stroke existentialist view, she sees it. The first objection is how to account for the value of freedom itself. If all value um, is brought into the world through uh, an act of free willing, how does that act of free willing get its own value? Secondly, um, she argues, I think, that this view is phenomenologically inadequate when it comes to the moral case. Um, And I think she has something like the view in mind that it just seems wrong to call the Good Samaritan and cases like the Good Samaritan, um, cases of unfreedom. And a third worry I think you can find in Murdoch is that this picture cuts the agent off from the context of their actions. So the agent gets treated as a bare choosing will, to which nothing is already reason given. There are no reasons prior to the agent's willing. And so this leaves us with a picture, as Murdoch uh, puts it, of the agent thin as a needle appears in the quick flash of the choosing will. Now, not all these reasons though, even if you think they're compelling ones or compelling objections to this view, may apply to Chang because as I've said, her position is a hybrid one. And so on her view, it's not the case that all reasons are created as uh, you might think they are on, on the view that Murdoch's criticizing. So when it comes to the first issue of how to account for the value of freedom itself, um, Chang can appeal to independent reasons to act freely. And when it comes to the third issue of the worry about cutting the agent Off from a context of reason, uh, a a context from the context of their actions, which then treats the agent as a bare choosing will. Again, Chang can allow that there are some situations that are reason given, so the agent can be, as it were, embedded in a context of reasons. So, those two worries may not apply um, so sharply to Chang. But what about problem two or objection two? Um, I think there's still the worry that uh, Chang's picture, Murdoch might say, d- fails to apply convincingly to the moral case, to the case of somebody like the Good Samaritan, where it seems wrong to call the Good Samaritan unfree. So as Ravisson puts it again in, her, in a quote from Mark Sinclair's book, um, the sage cannot not do good. Is he any the less free for that? That's the the intuition that seems to to tell against Chang's view. So Murdoch uh, develops a position uh, on the basis of these criticisms that contends that freedom is more a matter of vision rather than a matter of choice. As she puts it, freedom is not choosing. That is merely the move that we make when all is already lost. Freedom is knowing and understanding and respecting things quite other than ourselves. Virtue is in this sense to be construed as knowledge and connects us so with reality. So on this account, freedom involves seeing the world rightly and acting accordingly. And so is more about knowing rather than choosing. And I think it's important to see that on Murdoch's account, this knowledge constitutes freedom because it enables us to escape from the neuroses and fantasies within which we imprison ourselves by turning us away from those fantasies. So we've seen that Murdoch, I think, can raise significant concerns about Chang's side of the aporia. But I think it would also be wrong to treat Murdoch as wholly insensitive to the other side of the aporia and thus to be simply dismissive of the concerns raised by someone like Chang. After all, um, the the title of this paper um, is how is freedom compatible with the authority of the good? Where Murdoch is precisely raising a kind of question that um, uh, is at the center of um, Chang's concerns. And Murdoch goes on, definitions and revelations of the good seem to preclude the spiritual value of free adherence. So Murdoch herself sees a problem here that needs addressing the kind of of problem that Chang herself has raised. So I'm going to argue in the rest of the paper that Murdoch actually wants to accommodate some of Chang's concerns and thus to resolve the aporia rather than just opt for one side at the expense of the other. So I'm going to argue that yes, Murdoch does talk about obedience and necessity, but in doing so, she's not meaning to subordinate the will to reason or agency to knowledge, because I think the idea is that she also sees a place for will and agency in making us aware of the good and thus in considering what we have reason to do. And I think this can be seen particularly in her account of imagination and also of the associated account of attention. And so that's what I'm going to discuss now in more detail. So in discussing Murdoch on the imagination, I'm gonna focus on a paper called The Darkness of Practical Reason, one of Murdoch's great titles. Um, and published, this was published in 1966 as a review article um, on Stuart Hampshire's book, Freedom of the Individual. It's not one of her most famous papers, but I think it's a very interesting one. And um, it actually is the one that contains the quote I've used in my title. Murdoch makes similar criticisms of Hampshire elsewhere, particularly in the idea of perfection. And she also has other discussions of imagination, particularly in metaphysics as a guide to morals, chapter 11. So in the darkness of practical reason in the paper, Murdoch accuses Hampshire of working with a strict dualism of will and of reason. And as a result, being unable to properly accommodate the imagination. So she puts it, Hampshire relegates imagination to the passive side of the mind. And he therefore regards it as a side issue, which is, as she puts it, not even mentioned in his main argument. He just treats imaginings as drifting ideas. And Murdoch argues that Hampshire is in a way forced to bypass the imagination because this word, as she puts it, may be used to name an activity which is awkward for his theory as it doesn't fit into his dualism of will and reason. So here's a a longer passage. I should like to use the word imagination in a sense more like its normal one to describe something we do a great deal of the time. This activity, which may be characterized by a contrast with strict or scientific thinking, is like so many totally familiar things, not easy to describe. But one might attempt a description as follows a type of reflection on people, events, etc which builds detail, adds color, conjures up possibilities in ways which go beyond what could be said to be strictly factual. When this activity is thought to be bad, it is sometimes called fantasy or wishful thinking. That we are all constantly engaged in this activity is something which Hampshire chooses to ignore and he selects his vocabulary accordingly, end of the quote. So while Hampshire sees imagining as passive and as potentially dangerous because it's likely to deceive reason, Murdoch treats this as fantasizing, not imagining. And she treats imagination proper as something we do in a way that can be used to aid reason. On her view then, it forms an important place in our moral psychology where reason and will come together which is why it can't be fitted into Hampshire's more dualistic picture. So she says, he Hampshire can readily admit imaginings which are unwilled, isolated, passive. But if we admit active imagination as an important faculty, it is difficult not to see this as an exercise of will. Imagining is doing, it is a sort of personal exploring. And in the idea of perfection, uh, she says, man is not a combination of an impersonal rational thinker and a personal will. So thought and will, I think she's saying there are not to be understood as two unrelated capacities. Murdoch also connects imagination with another key term of hers, which um, she acknowledges come to her through Simone Weil, namely attention. So in the paper, Darkness of Practical Reason, she puts imagination and attention together and also treats the latter as active rather than merely passive, something that can be achieved through a variety of techniques. So for example, she says, the formulation of beliefs about other people often proceed and must proceed imaginatively and under a direct pressure of will. We have to attend to people. We may have to have faith in them, And here, justice and realism may demand the inhibition of certain pictures, the promotion of others. So um, I now just want to briefly consider three aspects of uh, Murdoch and imagination uh, that are relevant to the discussion. First, I'll say a little bit more about her conception of the imagination. Then I'll say a bit more about her account of how it is that the imagination leads us to act. And then thirdly, her account of the activity involved in imagining. So first of all, on her understanding of imagination itself, her conception is intentionally very broad. um, And in the moral case, it might involve some, some of the following. First of all, imagining scenarios and possibilities, such as what might happen as the consequences of one's actions or what it might be like being in certain situations. Secondly, seeing what it is like from someone else's perspective. Thirdly, gaining some insight into a person's nature and character. Fourthly, seeing how the world might be changed in various ways by one's actions. And then finally, I think she thinks imagination is involved in devising new concepts which often have an important metaphorical and hence imaginative element where again those new concepts can help us think about things in a different way so all of this um, may be required as part of the process of moral reasoning or reflection or thinking and This is what makes this kind of thinking more than just the rather mechanical process of comparing reasons to act for and against. I think that's what she has in mind when she draws the contrast between imagining and strict or scientific thinking where you just draw up a list as it were of pros and cons and then work out which side wins. The second thing to mention is how imagination plays a role in action. So the way the imagination can help in engaging with others can incorporate all the aspects I've mentioned. So it can involve putting yourself in someone else's shoes. It can involve changing the image we have of them. So in uh, Murdoch's famous example of a mother-in-law M, who who, um, changes her view of her daughter-in-law D, Murdoch says, D is discovered to be not vulgar, but refreshingly simple, not undignified, but spontaneous, not noisy, but gay, not tiresomely juvenile, but delightfully youthful, and so on. So M's picture of D changes, one might say, as a result of imagining D in a different light. And also, I think we can recognize the limitations of our power of imagining as a way of acknowledging the otherness and particularity of others. So for example, we can say, I can't really imagine what it must be like for her. So all these um, aspects of imagining can play a role in leading us into action. And then finally, what about the role of activity within imagination itself? Well, I think the view Murdoch has is that we can be active in our imagining by deploying it in our considerations of the situation and also coming to question how well our our imagination has worked and taking steps to employ it better. So for example, we might work to pay, pay more attention in a certain situation, or we might try and adopt different metaphors, images and concepts, or we might try to set aside the distortions of prejudice or fantasy, or we might just acknowledge that our imaginative efforts have failed and they might need reworking as uh, we try to imagine things differently. So for Murdoch, all, this is, are, are, all these are forms of mental activity that the subject undertakes in imagining. Okay, so now the thought is that the, with this picture of the imagination and the kind of mental agency involves, it puts Murdoch's account of the will that we were discussing earlier in a slightly new light. So her account now, it seems to me, doesn't straightforwardly fit with the one that concerns Chang of a will that's entirely subservient to reason and therefore leaves out agency. It's true that for Murdoch, choice has a diminished place at the point of action. But I think this is because on her view, the will has already been engaged at the level of the imagination and so has already played its role. So we are not passive, even when we have some clear reason to act, as it is through this activity of imagination, that we ha- uh, that what we have reason to do is thereby been revealed. So we've already brought ourselves to see the situation a certain way, which is why in seeing it that way, we then appear to have little room left for choice. The decision makes itself, as it were. So again, just to contrast this picture now with the the two we've already been discussing. First of all, we had the basic orthodox view, so you have your situation, uh, practical reason identifies what you have most reason to do, and then you just do it. And then we had the the challenge from Chang that where's the active will in this picture. Then we have Chang's view, the active will comes in right at the start, as it were, in creating reasons, and then you will in the light of those reasons. But now I think we have Murdoch's view bringing in um, what I've been discussing. So we have the active will involved in imagining uh, and imagining uncovers the reasons that we have to act in the situation. We then engage in practical reasoning in the light of those reasons um, and then will the action. So the will is engaged, but not where Tang wants to put it. Um, the will is engaged at the level of the imagination as a result of the cognitive role of imagination, which then may leave no room for further choice at the level of action. But still the thought is there is a place for agency in the process. And just to give you a passage, which uh, I think or at least suggests to me something like this picture. I can only choose within the world I can see in the moral sense of see, which implies that clear vision is a result of moral imagination and moral effort. There is of course distorted vision and the word reality here inevitably appears as a normative word. One is often compelled almost automatically by what one can see. If we ignore the prior work of attention and notice only the emptiness of the moment of choice, we are likely to identify freedom with the outward movement since there is nothing else to identify with. But if we consider what the work of attention is like, how continuously it goes on and how imperceptibly it builds up structures of value around about us, we shall not be surprised that at crucial moments of choice, most of the business of choosing is already over. This does not imply that we are not free, certainly not, But it implies that the exercise of our freedom is a small piecemeal business which goes on all the time and not a grandiose leaping about unimpeded at important moments. The moral life on this view is something that goes on continually, not something that is switched off in between the occurrence of explicit moral choices. What happens in between such choices is indeed what is crucial. End of quote. So, um, What I want to try and claim is that Murdoch's position suggests a way out of the aporia with which we began. On the one hand, the problem was in the cases like that of the Good Samaritan, voluntarism about the reasons on which we act seems misplaced, but on the other hand, we may seem to be reduced to automata in our moral actions if all the will then does is lead the agent to act on the basis of these reasons. Now with Murdoch, uh, we could say, well, the will can play a crucial role via the imagination and also via attention in making those reasons evident to us in a way that enables the agent to see herself as actively engaged with her actions in a different way. Thanks to its role in the imagination, the will thus finds freedom within practical reason rather than on Chang's picture in which it can find a space for freedom only when practical reason falls short or gives out. Okay, so that's the sort of view I'm I'm proposing. Let me finish by just discussing some possible responses that I think Chang might give to what I've said. So one reply that uh, she might give is that, um, look, can't reasons equally take away our freedom at the level of the imagination, unless that too somehow involves the will in the creation of reasons. And I think something like that worry, again, can be found in the early modern debate. Uh, and Michael Murray puts that, uh, that worry as follows in discussing that debate. He says, some try to thwart this objection that the intellect is determined by arguing that the will exercises control over the process of practical deliberation, rendering the activity of the intellect free, albeit in a derivative sense. However, critics argued that this view falls prey to an equally vicious infinite regress since the intellectualists claim that each act of will in turn required a judgment of the intellect to move it. So the worry here is that even if the will is involved in deliberating on reasons to act in uh, the context of the imagination, we're still slaves to the intellect as within the imagination, it still must be determined by reasons to imagine one way rather than another. So here's my response to that that, uh, objection. So on the one hand, as the moral reasons to act in this situation are not yet known, which is why the process of imagining is being conducted, they can't constrain the will in its imagining. On the other hand, There will be reasons to imagine or retend in some ways and not others. Nonetheless, because of the epistemic uncertainties involved, the will still has a kind of license in how it proceeds in its operations. So um, uh, there are various options here in how I direct my imagining, which are not fixed in advance or binding from the outset on my imaginative endeavors. So one might think of an analogy here with scientific inquiry. Until the truth is settled, there are various options that can be used to investigate into the truth, various hypotheses to be tested, experiments to be conducted, models to be tried and so on. And so this makes this a process, uh, this process a sort of personal exploring, as Murdoch puts it. But this isn't random choosing either carried out in a void because it's shaped by various parameters of inquiry, even if it's not determined by them. So the kind of freedom involved in imagining here is not the same as the freedom of fantasizing, which has no constraints on it at all. Okay, so here's a second question or second challenge. What about the Good Samaritan? Um, So you might say, well, look, you started with the Good Samaritan, But uh, he also doesn't seem to be using his imagination in the way that you've suggested. Because again, the whole point I was making was that the Good Samaritan isn't deliberating about whether or not to help the traveler. So he's not doing any of this personal exploring. And so does that mean that on my account or on this account, he's unfree? The response to that worry, I think, is to say, look, in seeing the traveler as he does, the good Samaritan's capacities for imagination and attention will have been sufficiently engaged to still make it the case that his agency has been involved. But it, this doesn't have to be at the point of seeing the needs of the traveler, but in having developed a view of the world in which that perception takes place, perhaps not always fully actively, but often passively. So this gives this previous work, as it were, gives the practical um, perspective in which he acts a perspective, which can thus claim to be his. So to use a rather sort of corny example, we might think of the skilled tennis player. There's no deliberation at the point of making the shot, but there's lots of prior use of agency in building up to that point. And thirdly, a third then worry is that this is still, in the end, not enough to give Chang what she wants. She might allow that Murdoch is right that the will is involved when a moral agent imagines and attends, but uh, it still doesn't engage their very selves, as she puts it, which she thinks cannot occur in recognizing and responding to reasons, even if this involves an active imagining and attending, but only in the activity of creating those reasons. Only then, she might say, is the self fully engaged. My, my, my response to that worry is to say that perhaps it underestimate what Murdoch takes to be involved in imagining and attending in the moral case, and in particular, the kind of struggle and thus engagement that this can often require. So on Murdoch's account of these cases, the will doesn't just guide the imagination in conditions of uncertainty, but it also involves us taking a stand for or against certain pictures we have of other people and our relations to them, perhaps struggling to hold on to the right way of seeing and to resist the wrong one, as for example, in the, the m d case. So I think there's more room for the idea in Murdoch's picture that the self thereby commits itself to a position in the way that Chang wants. So here's one passage mentioned earlier that suggests this kind of response. Murdoch says, the formulation of beliefs about other people often proceeds and must proceed imaginatively and under a direct pressure of the will. We have to attend to people. We may have to have faith in them. And here justice and realism may demand the inhibition of certain pictures, the promotion of others. So again, in the case of M and D, the mother-in-law has to actively suppress her various prejudices and preconceptions about D in order to see D rightly, where this involves the will in not just choosing, but engaging with this process in which we thereby commit ourselves. And I think Murdoch can also agree with Chang that if reasons always decisively fixed how we should act, This would deprive us of the possibility of making the kinds of choices that define our individual identity as when we choose one career over another or one partner over another or even one football team over another. If those weren't in some sense left open, I think Murdoch can agree that that might um, limit our capacity for forming our own identity in a sense. And I think Murdoch can also agree that even in the moral case, reasons can fail to determine action completely. For example, in cases of dilemmas or cases of imperfect obligations. So I think we have to be a little bit careful and perhaps qualify Murdoch's claim here, where she says, if I attend properly, I will have no choices. And this is the ultimate condition to be aimed at. The ideal situation is to be interpreted as the kind of necessity. I think we can interpret Murdoch here as saying that this is the ideal in situations like that of the Good Samaritan. As we've said, we shouldn't think of the Good Samaritan as making choices. But I don't think she has to be read as saying all moral situations have to be like this. But still, unlike Chang, Murdoch won't see these indeterminate moral cases as the special ones that alone make freedom possible. Freedom is still possible. In her account, uh, on her account in the Good Samaritan cases. But I still think in adopting Murdoch's approach, we're not just back with what Chang rejects as the orthodox account. For in acting how they do in the light of this situation, the agent can feel they have a, had a role in determining for themselves how to act, in building up their moral outlook. Not by creating a reason for themselves but by guiding and developing their capacities of imagination and attention, which give rise to that outlook and hence to their ethical perspective. So to see that I think Murdoch isn't back just with the orthodox view, we could contrast Murdoch's position with a passage that Justin Brokes mentions in his introduction to a collection on Murdoch from T. H. Huxley. So Huxley writes, if some great power would agree to make me always think what is true and do what is right, on condition of being turned into a sort of clock and wound up every morning before I get uh, before I got out of bed, I should instantly close with the offer. <laughs> um, now, I think there is something kind of spooky about that position and slightly creepy about it. Um, because, of course, it leaves out the role of the agent in coming to understand what is true and good in a way that I think Murdoch would also reject. For Murdoch, the action is not that of an automaton or a piece of clockwork, which simply responds to information provided from elsewhere. Rather, this is information the subject has arrived at in a way that involves the will, in a world which they have discovered using their agency, not as merely passive receptacles, in the manner of some robot or clockwork machine. So uh, to conclude, I'd like to try and claim that the aporia is resolved. Murdoch shows us how to move beyond the dualism of will and reason that the aporia concerning freedom in moral action relies on. On the one hand, Chang is right that we would lack freedom if practical reason just led us round by the nose. But she is wrong that the only way to avoid this is if we create reasons, just as the post Kantians are wrong that the only way to avoid this is if the will can step back from the intellect in making rationally ungrounded choice. For it can also be avoided if we control imagination and attention and thus exercise our agency within practical reason itself. And finally, for Murdoch, through this process, we also become free in a different sense, as through knowledge of the good, we escape the falsifying veil in which we trap ourselves. Thanks very much, and I'm looking forward to your questions.